Welcome everyone to this Valentine's special of the Backtracker History Show with me, Alice. First of all, I must apologise for my voice being slightly off. There's a load of illnesses going around, but hopefully that won't detract you from what's going to be happening in this episode, where we'll be looking into the history of Valentine's Day and also the Valentine's card. So without much ado, let's get started. Before we talk about some of the traditions associated with Valentine's Day, let's talk about the origins of the day itself, which evolved from the ancient Roman festival Lupercalia and has been celebrated in various ways around the world for thousands of years. Legend has it that in ancient Rome, men would sacrifice goats and dogs and use their skins to playfully whip women, all in the hopes of boosting fertility. The brutal fate included a matchmaking lottery in which young men drew the names of women from a jar. The couple would then go off and be intimate with each other for the remainder of the festival, or longer, if the match was right. Then in the 5th century, Pope Gelasius I decided to hijack this festival from the Romans and give it a more Christian makeover, naming it Valentine's Day. Although there were quite a few Valentines, so we're not sure which St. Valentine it's dedicated to originally. But there are two contenders who share the same feast day of the 14th of February and were both martyred in Rome. The first being Valentine of Turney, who died around 197 AD. He was a bishop in 3rd century Rome and is known for having married two lovers of differing religions against their parents' wishes. Anglo-Saxons believe St. Valentine of Turney shared flowers from his garden with visitors. When two of them fell in love, he officiated their wedding. This couple became the prime example of what it means to be blissfully in love, inspiring the saint to dedicate one day a year to a general wedding blessing. Valentine of Rome, who died around 496 AD, was imprisoned and fell in love with his jailer's daughter. This man was said to have written the very first Valentine, as he allegedly wrote his lover a letter signing it, From Your Valentine. Word of the Week And bearing in mind this is a Valentine special, the word this week is... Redomancy which stems from the new Latin redamantia and from the classic Latin redamo, meaning I requite love. How we translate redamancy is this, a love returned in full, an act of loving the one who loves you, the act of loving in return. Let's fast forward to the 14th century and Geoffrey Chaucer pens his poetic masterpiece, Parliament of Fools, which is believed to be the first recorded link between Valentine's Day and romantic love. But not everyone is convinced that he had February the 14th in mind when he waxed a lyrical about lovebirds. Some scholars reckon he might have been tipping his hat to Maytime instead. After all, it lines up nicely with the feast day of St. Valentine of Genoa, which falls in May. But whether Chaucer was a February fanatic or a May maestro, the tale of his connection to Valentine's Day still makes for a jolly good yarn. By the 15th century, 
the French were throwing lavish banquets and writing poetic love letters to celebrate the day. It was also a 15th century Frenchman who committed the earliest surviving Valentine's greeting to paper, while imprisoned in the Tower of London following the 1415 Battle of Agincourt. The Duke of Orleans wrote to his wife, I am already sick of love, my very gentle Valentine. The Duke of Orleans' remarkable letter survives in the manuscripts collection of the British Library, which also holds the oldest surviving Valentine's letter in the English language. This dates from 1477 and was sent by one Marjorie Bruce to her fiancé, John Pounston. In this letter, Marjorie describes John as her right well, beloved Valentine. By the 17th century, Valentine's Day gets a mention in William Shakespeare's Hamlet, when Ophelia is given the lines Tomorrow is St. Valentine's Day, all in the morning bedtime, and I am made at your window to be your Valentine. However, it was in the 18th century that the most familiar Valentine's poem made its first appearance. These lines, found in a collection of nursery rhymes printed in 1784, read The rose is red, the violet's blue. The honey's sweet, and so are you. While this was the first appearance of the poem in this form, its origins reach back to Sir Edmund Spencer's 1590s epic, The Fairy Queen. This featured the lines... She bathed with roses red and violets blue, and all the sweetest flowers in that forest grew. Let's start with the most associated item with Valentine's Day, and that's the Valentine's card. The oldest known printed Valentine's card dates to 1797, almost 50 years before printed Christmas cards. Before the modern postal system and mass-produced cards in England, Valentines were typically basic sheets of paper folded and sealed with wax. However, everything changed in 1840 with the establishment of the Uniform Penny Post. This innovation allowed Valentine's Day cards to be mailed for just one penny. So, by 1871, the General Post Office in London was processing over one million Valentines annually. In fact, Valentine's Day became so popular that postal carriers received special meal allowances to keep themselves running during the frenzy leading up to February the 14th. In Victorian England, openly expressing emotions were seen as improper. Therefore, people treasured the cards and letters they received for Valentine's Day more than those for Christmas or birthdays. The handmade cards were highly valued because they showed care and effort. In Victorian times, these cards were essential for expressing affection. Victorian lovers spent hours creating elaborate cards to declare their affections. Each was a piece of art. Victorian Valentine cards were all about extravagance. The more extravagant and flashy the card, the stronger the declaration of love. They were adorned with lace and paintings, pressed flowers and sometimes even odd items like dead canaries. There were no limits to the lengths Victorians would go to to convey their romantic feelings. It was Georgian Britain that brought about the pre-printed Valentine card. 
While they weren't quite the sensation they would later become, these early gems were the talk of the town. Take, for instance, the oldest surviving example from 1797, nestled away in the vaults of York Castle Museum. Imagine, if you will, young Catherine Mostay, a fine lass indeed, sends a charming card adorned with flowers and images of Cupid to a certain Mr Brown of London, and weaving its way, printed around the border, is a verse setting hearts aflutter with its sweet sentiment. Since on this ever happy day, all nature's full of love and play, yet harmless still, if my design, tis but to be your valentine. The tradition of sending cards to a beloved caught on in Canada and the US in the 1860s, but it wasn't until 1913 that Hallmark got in on the action. Word on the street. This week I started off looking for place names that looked like they had a romantic backstory. I found Bleeding Heart Yard, a cobbled courtyard of Greville Street in the Holborn area of the London Borough of Camden. The courtyard probably got its name after a 16th century insign dating back to the Reformation that was displayed on a pub called the Bleeding Heart in nearby Charles Street. The insign showed the heart of a Virgin Mary pierced by five swords. But urban legend has it that the courtyard's name commemorates the murder of Lady Elizabeth Hatton, the second wife of Sir William Hatton, whose family formerly owned the area around Hatton Garden. It's said that her body was found here on the 27th of January, 1646, torn limb from limb, but with her heart still pumping. Elizabeth Hatton did own a house in this area known as Ely Place, but she died of natural causes. Now, you may be surprised to know, because I certainly was, that there were alternatives to Valentine cards. While Valentine's Day messages typically expressed love and affection, the Victorians saw it as a chance to express all sorts of feelings, even if they weren't so friendly. One peculiar tradition was the Vinegar Valentines, which allowed people to openly express their negative opinions. These cards were sent anonymously, like love letters, and were meant to criticise rather than praise. Decorated with unflattering caricatures and cheeky poems, they could mock everything from someone's drinking habits to their stinginess or flirtatious nature. Vinegar Valentines were a humorous yet sometimes hurtful form of communication, and it's no surprise this tradition has faded away over time. Now, here's a fine example. To my Valentine, tis a lemon that I hand you and bid you now skidoo, because I love another, there is no chance for you, Another example that survives is in the collections of the University of Birmingham and features a cartoon of a woman with a large nose. Under the title, Miss Nosy, are the following lines. On account of your talk of others' affairs, and most dances you sit warming the chairs, because of the care with which you attend, 
to all others' business, you haven't a friend. Now let me tell you a little more about these vinegar cards, because of the millions of cards sent, some estimate that nearly half were of the vinegar variety. Before being labelled as vinegar valentines, the cheeky cards were initially referred to as mocking or comic valentines. They ranged from gentle teasing to outright aggression, targeting various individuals disliked by the sender, and could ridicule liars, cheats, flirts, alcoholics, and even people based on their professions, such as annoying salespeople, landlords, overbearing employers, and generally adversaries of all kinds. They featured grotesque drawings that caricatured common stereotypes and insulted recipients' physical attributes, marital status, or character traits. These cards were vicious and spared no one. And as women's suffrage movement gained momentum, suffragettes could also become targets of these cards. By the mid-19th century, both Britain and the United States had established large-scale valentine production systems. Insulting valentines provided manufacturers with an additional source of revenue, as they could be cheaply made by printing them on a single sheet of paper, folding and sealing them with wax. Despite their inexpensive production, many mass-produced cards of the 19th century involved intricate handiwork in their assembly. And because they were mailed anonymously, most senders of the vinegar valentines faced few repercussions. Adding insult to injury, senders didn't even foot the cost of postage. Vinegar cards provoked varied reactions from the recipient, there are recorded accounts from memoirs and newspapers that show that fistfights and court cases, suicides and attempted murder resulted. There are a few surviving examples of vinegar cards, as many were torn up or burnt from shame. Most surviving examples are unsent cards found in the collections of printers and stationers. Another item of the paper variety that was sent out at Valentine's Day was the puzzle purse. This was similar in design to the origami fortune teller that you might have made at school. The puzzle purse was made from a single piece of paper that was decorated and folded to conceal a secret romantic message. The corners were often numbered, giving the love notes an order, with a final message or illustration in the centre. It wasn't just the Brits who sent these. Some beautiful American examples have survived the centuries and ended up in auction houses selling for $6,000 to $8,000. Much like handmade cards, puzzle purses were a handmade token of affection that predated the Victorian era. Still, they boomed in popularity as a way of letting someone know that they had a secret admirer. Often hand-decorated with flowers and love hearts, Puzzle purses were a more discreet way for the Victorians to declare their affections. What's up, everybody? It's your boy, Zach. It's Josh. Zach, do you enjoy video games, drinking, and attempting to solve the world's problems through ridiculous schemes? Uh, yeah. Do you think others would enjoy that? I mean, I really hope so. So do I. So I think 
you all should come spend some time with us, the Midwest Meltdown. This show was created by these two fine gentlemen here, myself and Zach, when we spent the last 14 years telling each other funny stories, talking about video games, and literally anything else that comes to mind. We wanted to turn our passion for gaming into something that we could share with everyone. So again, follow us, the Midwest Meltdown, anywhere you can find your podcasts. That's Spotify, Apple Music, Podbean, Google Pods. Check us out. We'd be happy to have you. I was going to tell you a joke about boxing, but I forgot the punchline. Back in the day facts. Let's start with the 10th of February, 1542. Dethroned Queen Catherine Howard fifth wife of King Henry VIII, is transferred to the Tower of London prison for her impending execution. She was beheaded on the 13th of February, aged about 19, on the grounds of treason for committing adultery with her distant cousin, Thomas Culpepper. The 11th of February, 1990, sees Nelson Mandela released after 27 years imprisonment in South Africa. The 12th of February 1935, and we have the first secret demonstration of radio signals detecting aircraft by Robert Watson Watt and Arnold Wilkins at Daventry, England. This early warning system was vital to British victory in the Battle of Britain. The 13th of February 1907, an English suffragette stormed British Parliament and 60 women are arrested. It all started because the King's Speech on February the 12th, 1907, made no provision for any of the rights the suffragettes had been protesting for. So after a women's parliament meeting at Caxton Hall, they rallied their ranks of 400 and divided them into 14 groups, each with a leader. Charlotte Despard and suffragette founder Emmeline Pankhurst amongst them. Buoyed by Pankhurst's rallying slogan of deeds not words, they smashed Parliament windows and chained themselves to Westminster railings. 60 of them were arrested in the melee, but 15 managed to enter the lobby of Parliament. The 14th of February 1349 sees the Black Death Massacre, when 900 Jews are burned alive in Strasbourg and a similar number banned from the city after being blamed for the spread of the Black Death. On the 15th of February 1943, we first see the wartime propaganda poster, We Can Do It, produced by J. Howard Miller. It was posted on the walls of Westinghouse Electric and Manufacturing Company's plants in the Midwest of the United States. The poster was not seen much during World War II, but was rediscovered in the early 1980s and widely reproduced in many forms, often called We Can Do It, but also called Rosie the Riveter, after the iconic figure of a strong female war production worker. The We Can Do It image was used to promote feminism and other political issues beginning in the 1980s. The image made the cover of the Smithsonian Magazine in 1994 and was fashioned into a US first-class male stamp in 1999. And lastly, on the 16th of February, 1961, 
English guitarist Andrew James Taylor, best known as the former band member of Duran Duran, was born in Tynemouth, England. Well, I fear that's the end of our Valentine special, but don't worry, we'll be back with a normal show this time next week. You've been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show, and I'd like to take a moment to thank those who really brought today's show to life. And this week we have Bradley Stoke Radio's Steve Shepherd, as well as Sam Roberts, Joe Wilson, Andrea Reed, and Rose Hales from St Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol. Thank you, one and all. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>